You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. All right. Hello and welcome to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. Today I'm going to cover upper GI disorders. Um, and it's going to be great because it's important and people, everyone has an upper GI system. The uh, three big things that I'm going to discuss today are hiatal hernias, gastritis, and then dun dun dun, peptic ulcer disease. And before we even begin, just a point of um, interest. One of the things I would encourage you, especially if you're still in your, in your schooling, in your education, is to really understand, to know, to know your stomach and the different quadrants of your stomach and to actually cut it into like a tic-tac square where you've got a three by three set of quadrants on the right and the left side. Because when we think about where someone has pain, if they're complaining of, you know, far right upper quadrant pain and you think about what is located there, well, your liver is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your liver is there. But also like, your gallbladder pops out right there. So you could be gallstones, it could be, you know, a stomach ulcer, maybe a pancreatitis versus like if you're far left lower quadrant, if someone was like, oh, I've got a lot of pain there, depending on what gender these individuals were assigned at birth, it could be that they have diverticulitis or diverticulosis that is maybe brewing into a diverticulitis. It could be pelvic pain. It could be groin pain. It could be some sort of inguinal hernia. So just something to think about. If you've never classified or thought about the abdominal system in that sense, I would encourage you to sit there and think about about it and and think like if someone was complaining about pain and they pointed with one finger, what would be like the top three things you you would consider and be worried about? But I digress. From there, let's get right back into upper GI and we're going to start off with hernias. The first one I'm going to talk about is actually called a hiatal hernia, which is a diaphragmatic hernia. And this is where it's, uh, you know, part of your stomach is protruding through the esophageal esophageal hiatus. And so you've got part of your stomach that pops through it. There's four different types. Most of the patients that have a hiatal hernia, the the way that they present with this, that really most are symptomatic, but the way that they're symptomatic is they only have heartburn. They only have heartburn, uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease, because that tiny bit of stomach that gets pushed through the esophageal hiatus, right? That esophageal sphincter. It basically, when we eat food, food kind of gets stuck right there. So they might feel like they've got a food bowl is stuck there and then acid bubbles up through there and it, it can be quite uncomfortable. So that's basically how your patients will present. Um, and the way that we will diagnose this is, is often just one of two ways. So if someone, if we're suspicious that someone has a hiatal hernia, uh, they will do a barium swallow screen with fluoroscopy where they have them drink, you know, this barium fluid and then they take pictures to see if in fact that pouch of stomach is above that sphincter. The other way that we'll do it is we will do what is the shorthand called an EGD. An EGD stands for esophagastroduodenal donoscopy. And that's where we stick a camera down their throat. In most institutions, um, you know, we sedate individuals for this. Kind of depends on where you're working and what your your uh, hospitals or your outpatient clinics protocols are. But they will do an EGD anywhere with like a fentanyl and Versed combo. So a little bit of uh, pain medication, that vers- um, fentanyl to take the edge off. And then the Versed, which is a little bit of a sedating and amnesic-like medication. In other institutions, they might use a propofol push and 
and Propofol pushes, they'll give just enough so that you're still breathing on your own. But when we say swallow this giant camera, you don't care. In terms of nursing management, okay, nursing management for someone who's got a hiatal hernia, it's going to be mainly around education for nutritional considerations and how to decrease intra-abdominal pressure. So in terms of nutritional considerations, if we have food that gets stuck there or if it's all that heartburn, we want to have them then avoid all of those spicy foods or high fat foods. And in terms of decreasing intra-abdominal pressure, this is really specific to decreasing the pressure of and the pressure that is deployed on the stomach that is pushing through that um, that diaf- diaf- you know the diaphragmatic hernia. So uh, two ways that we can fix it, right? <laughs> There's either a non-surgical approach or a surgical approach, as there is in most things. If someone with a hiatal hernia decides that they want to do the non-surgical approach, it's what we do is we treat it very similar to um, acid reflux to that GERD. We alter their nutrition. We'll give them proton pump inhibitors. We can give them antacids to kind of help control it. If they decide for the surgical option, that's um, when there tends to be a high risk of potential complication. And surgical option options for the treatment of a hiatal hernia is only used in hiatal hernia types two, three, and four. So type one, which is the most common, we normally just say it's you have terrible acid reflux. Uh, so sorry. Change your diet. Here's some antacids. Here's some proton pump inhibitors. The type two, type three, and type four all have to do with how much of the stomach is through kind of that esophageal sphincter. Okay. So that hiatus. So type two is really where the fundus or the top of that stomach rolls through the hiatus. A type three is where the fundus and the gastroesophageal junction are herniated through that that hole up into their esophagus. And the type four involves um, everything, like the colon, the spleen, the pancreas, small intestine is um, found instead of the stomach where the stomach should be located. And so because the stomach is all the way up there. Um, so in types two, three, and four, they will opt for a surgical repair. Um, but most commonly, type one is the most frequent, which is just, it's also called a sliding hernia. Um, and it's uncomfortable, but it's it's treatable, um, just with diet and some, some medications. So those are the different types of upper GI hernias, right? Upper GI. Now I'm going to move into gastritis and gastritis. There's two different versions. There's acute gastritis and chronic gastritis and gastritis in and of its name is just inflammation of that gastric mucosa. And that gastritis can be classified really based on a, what's causing it, B, if these cellular changes, and C, what the distribution of the lesions look like and if it's erosive or non-erosive. So in acute gastritis, if you imagine what the inside of your stomach looks like, I think before I actually looked at pictures online, you know, I imagined that the inside of my stomach was this nice shiny pink inside of the stomach with nice little like waves, that rugae, which helps to break down the food. And if that's what you were thinking, you'd be correct. In acute gastritis, right, that the inside of the stomach lining becomes thickened and reddened, and that mucous membrane with those gastric folds looks really angry. 
And people with acute gastritis, there's signs and symptoms in the way that they'll actually present. It's going to range in severity from either really mild to really severe. And you're going to have anything between, you know, just some mild epigastric discomfort pain to that dyspepsia to hematoemesis where they're, it's so angry and reddened and thickened that you now have some oozing of blood and now they're going to throw up some that blood. So because of that, when we think about gastritis, the whole many the reason why a lot of us will never get gastritis or we don't have an issue with gastritis is because the prostaglandins are a protective mucosal barrier that prevents the stomach from essentially digesting itself. Okay, so when we have the, that nice, beautiful prostaglandin layer, that mucosal barrier, the acid that our stomach is secreting is not eating itself. And so we don't have those types of pains. In the event of some sort of gastritis, right, which many times people are going to get gastritis for a few different reasons. If they are a long-time user of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, if they are popping a lot of ibuprofen, the whole way that ibuprofen works and reduces pain is it, is it stops, it interferes with the prostaglandins. If we interfere with that, we don't have that beautiful mucosal layer to protect the inside of the stomach. Other other reasons why someone might develop gastritis is if they, you know, binge drink alcohol. Alcohol, coffee, and caffeine, those are three big ones that can actually irritate the inside lining of the stomach. And then, you know, other risk factors are going to be stress or smoking. Um, local specifically, right? So those are that those are risks for getting gastritis, but local irritants also pose a risk for gastritis. And what that basically means is if someone ingests a corrosive substance, they're likely to develop gastritis because it will just eat through that prostaglandin layer or irritate the internal lining immediately. If someone is having radiation therapy, um, things like that. So that acute version, thickened, red, angry looking inside of the stomach with prominent gastric folds, and it's going to range in severity. Welcome to Fuller Butts a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Doctors Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. Now, people can also have chronic gastritis. And when you look at a picture of chronic gastritis, right, it tends to be patchy and diffuse you know, angry spots, kind of like a, almost like a speckled egg, if you will. And that stomach wall just sort of very slowly, progressively becomes thinner and thinner and atrophies. Where you might see this is in a chronic alcoholic. If someone is an alcoholic and they're constantly drinking alcohol and that's a corrosive substance on the inside of the stomach, we can see this over the, over the course of time, that stomach will just slowly become thinner and atrophy. The other big reason why some people will develop chronic gastritis is from H. pylori, and we'll actually get into that in a little bit. But 
Chronic gastritis can also be the result of vitamin B12 deficiency from the atrophy of that lining of the stomach, and it leads to the loss of function of those parietal cells, uh, which is the source of the intrinsic factor that gets lost, and then it results in the inability to even absorb B12, which can lead then to pernicious anemia. If you don't have, um, you know, if you don't have intrinsic, intrinsic factor, and you don't, if you have no intrinsic factor and you can absorb B12, you end up with pernicious anemia. So things to think about. But the way that we end up preventing and treating people who have gastritis, the prevention is all about just decreasing the risk exposure. So if you go to, I don't know, a big party city, uh, let's say Vegas, Las Vegas, for example, and you go with a bunch of friends and you have a weekend of just absolute like partying where you are drinking a lot, you're eating terrible food, you're smoking, you're then taking a bunch of ibuprofen because you have massive headaches from all of your alcohol consumption. Um, The way that we prevent gastritis from developing, you might get a sour stomach and that might actually be the principal um, start of a gastritis. Decrease your risk exposure. So that's how we prevent it. Decrease the risk exposure. Treatment-wise, it's just symptomatic treatment because in those episodes of gastritis where it's angry, right, we will give proton pump inhibitors and antacids to sort of help put the acid at bay, which is what is causing that discomfort. The only place where this differs is um, we will also give antibiotics, but only if H. pylori is the cause, okay? Only H. pylori uh, that is causing gastritis will be treated. And I'm actually going to talk about that in peptic ulcer disease because in peptic ulcer disease, okay, so we did hernias, we did gastritis. They're pretty simple and straightforward. Let's talk about peptic ulcer disease, And peptic ulcer disease, it's in the name. You have an ulcer in the peptic region, which is your upper GI tract. And that encompasses either your esophagus, your stomach, your duodenum. And if you end up with an ulcer in one of those locations, usually it's if it's in your esophagus, we call it an esophageal ulcer, but it's peptic ulcer disease. And the whole reason why they form, right? The role of the stomach, when we think about it, is that the the stomach's job is to liquefy food by churning it in with the digestive acids. And then the pylorus will squeeze the food from the stomach down into the duodenum. And the three layers that really make up the lining of that stomach are the mucosa, the submucosa, and then the muscle layers. Okay. Now remember when I was talking about the beautiful mucosa from the prostaglandin, the prostaglandin mucosa layer, that's the top layer. And so the way that they sort of form, these ulcers will form is due to gastric acid and pepsin. Um, so the gastric acid, pepsin, and a breakdown in that defense, in some sort of the defense mechanism of the stomach is the reason why peptic ulcers or ulcers in this upper GI in the stomach form. Um, because when you have a breakdown in the defense mechanisms in the stomach, that mucosa of the stomach, which is rich in bicarbonate and which is protective, and it's got that protected lining and it contains you know, the pits with the cells that are responsible for secreting the acid, you know, those parietal cells, they release the hydrochloric acid. And then chief cells release the pepsinogen. And then the G cells release the gastric stuff. <laughs> so it is quite the um, the sequence. So the whole reason why they form is because for whatever reason, we have some sort of issue with the gastric acid and pepsin and the defense mechanism of the stomach, the lining, which is that beautiful mucosa, submucosa, and muscle layer, 
it breaks down some way, somehow. And when that happens, that acid now has essentially, right, gastric acid, we got way too much of it with a pepsin, and it breaks down the stomach. And then we are now having hydrochloric acid on the stomach, in on the inside of the stomach, or the esophagus or the duodenum, and it causes ulcer because it's a breakdown in that tissue. Now, when we think about peptic ulcer disease specifically, think about it this way. There's two players, okay? There's two players, two big teams, I should say, two teams that come into play. So you've got your defense, your defensive team, and then you've got your toxic team. And on your defensive good, good team, right? The defensive team is the good team. You've got your bicarbonate, which coats and protects that inside, and you've got the prostaglandins, right? And that is very protective of the stomach. So there's this fine balance, a tango, if you will, between that defensive team and the toxic team. And because the toxic team is what allows us to digest food. And so if anything shifts between those two balances, we become prone to ulcer formation ultimately, because bicarbon, the mucosa protects from the acid, the prostaglandins do three big things, okay? Three big things prostaglandins, okay? They regulate perfusion to the stomach. They regulate mucus to release that bicarb, which is protective, and they control the acid amount secreted by the parietal cells. Now that toxic team, there's two big, big, uh, you know, VIP players on the toxic team. So on the defensive good team, we have bicarbon prostaglandins. And on the toxic bad team, we have hydrochloric acid that is, that's coming out of the parietal cells and pepsin. So the toxic team, that hydrochloric acid is secreted by those parietal cells, and then pepsin is released from chief cells, which allows us to physically digest the food. So the toxic stuff we need to digest the food and the defensive good stuff we need to protect the stomach so that we don't tear a hole through our stomach. Now, what can happen is if you ever have watched American football, for example, if you think about it, right, you've got the defense and you've got the offense. The offense is the toxic team, right? They're just trying to score, which is break down the food for nutrition. And the defensive team is trying to just hold them in line, but still play the game. And then what happens is you get a runaway dog that runs onto the field and you have some sort of that stops the gameplay. You know, it's a villain comes aboard um, and there's two big sorts of villains that can come aboard. You know, you've got the um, person who's running just across the field who may or may not have clothes on. I don't know, maybe a, a um, an American football streaker that runs on the field that is distracting of the whole game. Or you've got the runaway dog and you have to try to catch this dog. Now, the vil- those two villains are going to be your H. pylori and um, which is attacking the mucosa, stopping that game, and NSAID use, which blocks the prostaglandins, okay? So those two villains, right, your good defensive team are the bicarb and the prostaglandins, and they're trying to keep the toxic bad team of the hydrochloric acid and the pepsin in line so that you can break down food and still maintain your stomach integrity. And then your villains interrupt the game, and those villains are H. pylori, which is going to attack the mucosa, and NSAID use, like heavy NSAID use, because those block the prostaglandins, which then breaks down the defense. And so when we think about those players, H. pylori, the first villain, in and of itself, produces ureas, urease, which breaks down to urea. And that is actually a byproduct of ammonia and CO2. Okay. So again, H. pylori produces urease, which breaks down urea, right? So urease is the enzyme to break down urea. And when we break down urea, the byproducts that are produced are ammonia and CO2. Okay. 
The deal with ammonia is that it neutralizes acid. So if we're neutralizing the acid, guess what? That H. pylori gets to live longer. And as it lives longer inside the stomach, it's just going to keep breaking down more mucosa. And we don't want that to happen. So it breaks down that mucosa and it allows the hydrochloric acid to get in and it causes erosions. And then histamines get released and more hydrochloric acid is produced. And the other like problem with this villain of H. pylori is it likes to live in acidic conditions. So it's just happy as a clam inside of your stomach with all of the acid that's circulating around breaking down, <laughs> breaking down and eroding the internal stomach. And all this time, now your histamines are releasing more hydrochloric acid and H. pylori is just, just rocking it, right? It, it loves to just hang out down there. So how do we get H. pylori? Well, the most common cause of H. pylori, right, is from drinking some sort of contaminated water substance. Now, duodenal ulcers, right, 90% of them, uh, according to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, um, said that duodenal ulcers, 90% of them were the resultant of H. pylori, and gastric ulcers, 80% of them were the resultant of H. pylori. So, if someone has a duodenal or gastric ulcer, we, they will investigate automatically whether or not H. pylori is in the system. And H. pylori, if you look at it, um, or if you look at its structure, it's spiral shaped. And so it helps, and that spiral shape helps to invade the mucosa because it can just spiral right on down. Now, it is also then spread via oral oral and fecal oral route. So many times people in the same household uh often are tested collectively because it is spread oral, oral, and fecal oral route. So that's H. pylori in a nutshell. Now, when we think about other reasons why someone might develop peptic ulcer disease, or, you know, some sort of ulcer, it's not just H. pylori. But again, let's let's go back to those prostaglandins, the prostaglandins that we like, okay, because it's part of the defensive team. Um, and prostaglandins make us feel pain and they allow us to have a fever, but they also play an important role in the gastric health in that defensive mechanism. Um, because when you take medications like ibuprofen and NSAID, that decreases the prostaglandins. Well, it decreases the prostaglandins, which makes whatever pain we were having go away or makes the fever that we had making us feel terrible be reduced. So it helps you know, initially for those issues, but prolonged use. So if someone has chronic back pain, for example, chronic back pain, and they're taking a lot of NSAIDs to try to, you know, self-treat their back pain at home, that prolonged chronic use decreases the prostaglandins and so much so that it places that gastric lining at risk for ulcer formation. So there's, you know, when we think about um, some of the different reasons why someone might develop a peptic ulcer, a peptic ulcer or have peptic ulcer disease, whether it's esophageal, gastric or duodenal, um, H. pylori, and then NSAID use. Look, look for and ask about their over-the-counter medication use for pain. Now, one other like strange uh, syndrome that's a super rare digestive disorder, but you know, if you are testing in the United States and taking the NCLEX, uh, it's not uncommon for them 
time to drop this in there. It's a Zollinger Ellenson syndrome. It's a super rare disorder that basically results from just too much gastric acid. And that gastric acid, right? So there's a, a tumor formation that secretes gastrin and that gastrin increases stomach acid. That's basically all this syndrome is. And the excessive gas, gastric acid uh, can cause peptic ulcers in your stomach and your intestine. And again, if someone has an ulcer in their uh, stomach or in their intestine, they're going to have abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, weight loss, diarrhea. Uh, and if it goes untreated, if any Technically, if any ulcer goes untreated and it continues to erode, it can lead to very serious complications. Other causes of ulcer formation are going to be smoking because it increases bile salt reflux rates and gastric bile salt concentration. And because of that, those two things, the bile salt reflux rate and the gastric bile salt concentration, increase the duodenogastric reflux that raises a risk of gastric ulcers in smoking. So that's why smoking is on that list. Um, smoking and nicotine not only induce ulceration, but then they also potentiate that if caused again by H. pylori. Other reasons why someone might develop an ulcer are going to be from um, too much alcohol consumption, or maybe you just have really bad genetics. Honestly, there's some people out there that are just prone to it, and genetically, you drew the short stick. Stress and food do not cause peptic ulcer, but they will make them worse. So if you have some sort of peptic ulcer disease, stress and the different types of food that you're eating do not cause peptic ulcer disease, but will make it worse because it'll um, irritate the lining. Whereas, for example, really spicy food can cause gastritis because it's irritating because that's an ingestive, corrosive item. But again, the food will not cause peptic ulcer disease, but it will um, make it significantly more uncomfortable and worse. So individuals who have some sort of peptic ulcer disease, here's their signs and symptoms. Okay, so here's how they're going to present. Their main sign and symptom is they're going to have indigestion and epigastric pain, like a burning or a gnawing or some, they'll describe it as really dull, right in their epigastric region. The difference ends up becoming whether or not they have an ulcer in their gastric gastric ulcer or duodenal ulcer. Because if you have a gastric ulcer, right, so envision that the inside of your stomach, lower portion of it somewhere, just pick a spot in your brain, you have an ulcer that has formed. Now, when you eat food, the food stimulates what in your stomach? It stimulates more acid to be made because your stomach has to break down the food. Well, the more <laughs> when you eat food, when you have a gastric ulcer, it makes your pain so much more worse because your stomach secretes more acid to break down the food and that acid is getting into your gastric ulcer. Um, this pain can also, you know, typically occur about an hour or two after, after a meal. It can be much worse. And it's normally described as like this dull and aching pain. And because it hurts and people associate that pain or they correlate it with every time I eat, it hurts. They tend to have weight loss, uh, because they don't want to eat because it's very painful. Uh, and in severe cases, they can vomit quite a bit. And when that gastric ulcer is bad enough, um, they can actually have hematoemesis, that blood in the vomit. And it will look like what we call coffee ground emesis, which is where the blood leaks into the stomach and it sort of like almost um, chelates or binds up with the stomach acid. Uh, and then when that iron comes up, it's not... 
necessarily bright red, but it's coffee ground based. Uh, the bright red version would just be far higher up in the stomach. So again, when you think about if someone's bleeding, even like rectal bleeding, if it's bright red, it's probably near the exit versus if it's black tarry stool higher up in the digestive system. So that's gastric. Here's the difference with duodenal ulcers. So when we get an ulcer in our duodenum, which is just past the stomach, past that sphincter, every time we eat food, right, food drops into the stomach, stomach makes acid to get into the food, right? When you had that gastric ulcer, that food with the, with the, that had absorbed the acid every time it went over your ulcer, it hurt. But with a duodenal ulcer, Food makes the pain better because the food drops into the stomach, the acid gets absorbed into the food, and then when it exits into the the duodenum, it floats right over that duodenal ulcer, and that acid is not, you know, getting into the ulcer like it is in the stomach, if that makes any sense. And typically, what happens is with a duodenal ulcer, these patients will describe their pain actually being many more hours after a meal, like four hours after a meal. And that's because the food has fully exited their stomach and that residual acid that the stomach is secreting from its delicious meal that it just ate. Now that, now that acid that is not absorbed into food drops into the duodenum and is now sitting in the ulcer region. And that's oftentimes, you know, the stark delineation between a gastric ulcer and a duodenal ulcer. Food makes pain worse with a gastric ulcer. Food makes pain better with a duodenal ulcer. And food, the pain that someone has with a gastric ulcer is associated with food or just right after food consumption within an hour or two versus duodenal where oftentimes the pain is worse three or four hours after a meal. And these patients will often also report like, I woke up in the middle of the night in excruciating pain. Well, yeah, because none of us are eating in the middle of the night unless you're sleepwalking. And that pain is like nine. In terms of weight loss, these patients with a duodenal ulcer, um, they have a normal weight. They have a normal weight because they, they're eating because every time they eat and the food absorbs the acid and it floats right over the duodenal ulcer, they feel, it makes it feel better. Um, in severe cases, these, because of where the ulcer's located, just past, just distal, past that duodenal sphincter, right? Where you're going to see the blood in these patients is that dark, tarry stool substance. Because if that ulcer decides to start bleeding, it's right up near the stomach. But then all of that blood will then go through the small intestine, the large intestine, and then it will come out. So those are two very, very, very different uh, types of peptic ulcer diseases, peptic ulcers being a gastric or duodenal. And those are some key differences between the two and how your patients are going to present. Now, the way that we diagnose this is we scope the stomach. We do an EGD and we'll sedate them. We drop a camera down and we're literally just going to look to see where the ulcer is. And it's fairly easy to see. You can also do an upper GI series with a barium drink um, to coat the GI tract. And then we can take pictures. The other option is you can do a CT scan um, of someone's abdomen with contrast. And sometimes we can see those ulcers uh, that way. Now, if we suspect H. pylori, we can do a blood test. Um, We also, during an EGT, EGT, EGD, if we suspect that the gastric ulcer, right, because a lot of a high percentage of gastric and duodenal ulcers are caused by H. pylori, they'll take a they'll take a biopsy test. So while they're they've got the person sedated and they've got the camera down in their stomach, they just will take a little bit of the stomach and they'll send it off for testing to see if that H. pylori is located there. And they'll even do a urea breath test. Now a urea breath test, 
right, is where a patient will eat a urea tablet. And then we will measure the urea breath test. And if H. pylori is present, right, H. pylori wants to break down urea and produce ammonia and CO2. And so that breath sample collected actually measures the CO2 levels. So elevated levels of CO2 are indicative that these patients have H. pylori in their system. Complications now. Okay, so we've just done the presentation of peptic ulcer, whether it's gastric or duodenal. Um, We just talked about how we sort of diagnose it. Complications of if a, if a patient presents or things that you need to monitor whilst taking care of a patient who's actively being treated for either duodenal or gastric ulcer, GI bleed, number one, right? And if they have a GI bleed and they've got a gastric ulcer, we're likely to see it when they vomit, right? Either it's going to be that uh, ground coffee, coffee grounds, like, or it's going to be bright red when they vomit. If they've got a duodenal ulcer, we're looking at their poop. We want to know what their stool looks like. And if it's dark and tarry, they're probably bleeding. Um, if those ulcers go left untreated and they end up perforating, um, perforation of that stomach lining from the erosion, once that happens and all of that acid, irregardless of where it is, if it's gastric or duodenal, the stuff that's on the inside of the GI tract, is meant to be on the inside and not the outside. And so when we end up with that erosion and that perforation, all of that stomach acid and those juices leak out and it will actually lead to peritonitis. Uh, The other thing that we want to just monitor, and this is more of a long-term consideration, is individuals who develop gastric or duodenal ulcers are at increased risk for the development of a GI cancer just because those cells were affected for long enough to generate an ulcer. And then you have to always worry about bowel blockages. So again, when we're thinking about GI system and we're thinking about what they eat and drink, intake, output, weight, very important, as well as what are they putting out? What does their urine output look like? What does their stool look like? We want to know because a a bowel blockage can actually happen at the pylorus from chronic ulcerations over and over and over again, because as they all the the ulceration heals, it leaves a little bit of scar tissue and we can actually cause a bowel blockage at that pylorus from that chronic sort of um, issue. Now, treatment, here's how we treat it. Here's your interventions. Okay. Non-surgically, for those peptic ulcers, we are going to give antacids, okay? Antacids neutralize that stomach acid, and it sort of helps to reduce the immediate issue with the acid affecting whether it's a gastric ulcer or duodenal ulcers. Here's the deal. Here's the caveat with antacids, though. They can interfere with a whole lot of drugs, a whole lot of antibiotics, um, caraphate H2 blockers. So because antacids in and of themselves interfere with so many drugs. If you're giving someone like a Tums in hospital, they need to be given alone like one to two hours before any other meds are given to them. Uh, Caraphate is this really thick, um, it's also called sucrophate. It's this really um, kind of thick, like syrupy solution. And we will actually give that on an empty stomach. Uh, Definitely don't give it with antacids, but it's designed to heal the mucosa. And it basically lines the stomach and protects the internal stomach lining from the acid that's being secreted. So that's an option that we can give. So you can give antacids, but give them by themselves without any other medications an hour or two before any other medication. Or we can give them caraphate that that they'll drink on an empty stomach, which lines the stomach and protects it from acid. 
Now, your other options are going to be histamine blockers. And it ba- basically, the histamine blocker is going to block histamine. And if you block histamine, right, histamine causes parietal cells to basically release the hydrochloric acid. So if you block them, that like a Zantac or renididine or pepsid famotidine, those are big, very common ones. If we're giving that histamine blocker, we are decreasing hydrochloric acid secretion. We're blocking it because the histamine, the more histamines you've got releasing, the more acid is secreted. Block the histamines, you reduce the acid. You can also give um, bismuth uh, subsalicylates, which here in the United States, Pepto-Bismol, do not give it to children. Do not give Pepto-Bismol to children. There are specific Pepto brands for children. That's a big no-no. Do not give Pepto-Bismol to children. But that bismuth uh, subsalicylate, it, we use it with H. pylori treatment because it covers the ulcers and it really kind of helps to... Um, It helps to kill the bacteria in a sense. Antibiotics are a big one for H. pylori. So someone has a positive diagnosis of H. pylori because it's that bacterium, you have to give, you have to give, you have to give antibiotics to treat it. And then the last medication you might consider is a proton pump inhibitor. Again, like an omeprazole, which is the tried name is Prilosec or pentprozolol, like protonics. And basically those PPIs, uh, attaches to the proton pump on those parietal cells and blocks the release of the hydrogen, which is part of the hydro- hydrochloric acid development. So again, we're just reducing acid secretion. So antacids you can give, give those tons early and alone. Uh, Carophyte, drink it alone. <laughs> Can't mix antacids with anything. And then block acids. Block the acid secretion either with some sort of histamine receptor blocker or with a proton pump inhibitor. And then you can give Pepto-Bismol if needed. Do not give it to children. And you can give antibiotics for uh, H. pylori. Now, surgically, if the ulcer is bad enough where the medications that we're giving, um, it's not enough, we can do surgical rec- correction. And there's three big surgeries that we can do. Uh, the first one is called a vagotomy. And that's where we actually go in and we cut a part of the vagus nerve. And you've got two sides of your stomach are lined with the vagus nerve. And they'll go in and they'll just cut one of those tracks so that when your brain sends a signal to release hydrochloric acid, only half the stomach releases it. And so then we reduce this, the hydrochloric acid secretion and you reduce acid, you reduce damage and erosion to the ulcers that are prominent. Another option is a pyloplasty. Um, if the pylorus, and that pylorus is just, you know, that's where the stomach and the duodenum kind of connect. If it's become very narrowed from scarring from repeated chronic erosions, they can actually go in there and cut it and then stitch it back together to open up that flow. And it allows flow to go through. Um, the other big sort of surgery, surgical treatment option for an ulcer, which this one is usually only used for a true diseased part of the stomach is called a gastric resection, where they will actually go in and cut out a diseased portion of the stomach from the chronic ulcerations. The problem with doing that is anytime, anytime you have someone with a gastric resection, um, the big ones are going to be with bariatric surgery. If someone has, you know, a gastric bypass or if someone has gastric resection because of some sort of ulcer, the big problem with that is you have to watch for dumping syndrome. Because when you remove stomach, you remove real estate 
to churn food and regulate food movement. If you do not have that, you know, football field for the food to run down and break down across, right, you are going to have these really large molecules that move through the stomach way too quickly. So because the stomach cannot regulate that movement adequately uh, of food, because of the section that's missing, it enters way too quickly into the small intestine. And it's a problem because undigested food specifically is hypertonic based because it's got such large molecules still built into it because it didn't have enough, it didn't run the football length field. It only did a hundred meters, right? It didn't do the full field. And so as a result, when those big, big, big molecules drop into the small intestine, right? It pulls water from the blood and that can cause problems. It can lead to swelling. Um, oftentimes they'll have nausea. They'll have diarrhea, uh, late dumping syndrome. We have really bad sugar problems because of the insulin factor. So nursing management. So let's, we've just talked about what our patients look like with peptic ulcers and the different types. We've talked about the different interventions that we can do. Here's how we assess our patients. Okay. Assess their vital signs, their bowel tones. If we're dealing with the gut from mouth to anus, you'd have to look at the bowel tones and the stomach. Are they hyperactive, hypoactive, absent, normal? Is their stomach tender? Are they eating and drinking? Are they pooping and peeing? Do they have vomit? Those are your big things because when we talk about, you know, gastric issues, we have to correlate it back to the GI system. Pain. When is the pain worse? That's going to be a key because if they say, man, I, I eat all this food and then my pain goes away. So I just keep eating. So I'm, I'm either normal weight or I've gained a bunch of weight. You can think duodenal ulcer. That's okay. Versus I can't eat at all because every time I eat, I have terrible pain immediately after. That's a gastric ulcer. Ask about those health histories. Maybe someone in the family has, was recently diagnosed with H. pylori. And now this person might be at risk for having it because it's transmitted via the oral, oral or fecal oral route. Ask about their medications. Are they just dumping through Costco-sized bottles of ibuprofen? You know, are they on anticoagulants? What about their alcohol and caffeine consumption? So these are all those things that we want to investigate. When you have that person with peptic ulcer disease and you're monitoring them, you also want to mon monitor them for any sort of complications if they have surgery, like GI bleeding. So if they don't go for surgery, but they come into the hospital because they have an ulcer, you have to watch for GI bleeding. And if they start to bleed, just think about what happens when too much of the red stuff is not in the, in the body, right? You become tachycardic, you'll get hypotensive, you have a really low hematocretin hemoglobin, maybe they're pale, they'll have dark tarry stools or those coffee ground emesis, or you'll see bright red blood somewhere, either out of the bum or out of the mouth. And if those ulcers erode so far that they then perforate, right, now you're going to have severe abdominal pain with vomiting and you're going to develop peritonitis, which is that rigid board-like abdomen, and you're going to get tachycardia and tachypnea. Or maybe they have an obstruction. And if they have an obstruction of that pylorus from chronic erosion and scarring and erosion and scarring, they're going to vomit because the food can't get out. So then it sits in the stomach, they get abdominal pain, they feel really bloated, and then they puke it back out. And if they ultimately end up with that gastric resection as a result of some of, of ulcerations that have to be surgically removed, you have to watch for dumping syndrome. You have to watch for dumping syndrome. Again, you remove stomach real estate 
and you're not able to regulate movement of food as easily or naturally. And that food doesn't have enough time to run across the football field and it enters into the small intestine too soon when there's really big molecules. It's hypertonic based and it shifts water from the blood to the intestines. Well, when you shift water from the blood to the intestines, not only do you get tachycardic and sweaty and diaphoretic because your body's going through this crazy, you know, sequence of events, but you're also going to have a lot of diarrhea because there's so much water in the small intestines and it increases that motility and that shift just it happens real bad. And then you have to worry about hypoglycemia because a food that enters too quickly into the small intestine is also is rich in carbohydrates and sugars, those big molecules. And it causes the pancreas. It's your pancreas is like, Oh my God. Oh shit. Like there's a lot of carbohydrates and sugars. And it then I got to release insulin. Great. So your body releases insulin but your body can't absorb the sugar because it's too big because it didn't get broken down in the stomach. And then you end up in, in, with hypoglycemia. So here's the education for, for people who have some sort of ulcers. Foods don't cause ulcers, but they will irritate them. So if someone has a positive diagnosis, diagnosis of an ulcer, have them avoid spicy and acidic foods and have them consume low, low fiber foods that are bland and easy to digest, like in that brat diet, bananas, rice, applesauce, and toast. Okay. If they have a resection, here's the key with dumping syndrome. What we need to educate them on, again, they don't have the football real estate of the stomach to break down the food before it enters the small intestine. So we encourage these individuals to eat frequent small meals rather than three large meals, three large meals out the window, just uh, many small meals. And when they are done eating, we encourage them to lie down for 30, about 30 minutes after eating, because lying down allows for that stomach to try to stay in, for the food to try to stay in the stomach as long as it can before it drops into the small intestine. The other thing we want them to do is not drink fluid with the meal, because if they drink fluid with a meal, it's like, you know, a, a water slide pushing all of those big food molecules out of the football field really fast. And so we, we don't want to do that. We also want them to avoid sugary foods and drinks. Again, they already have a large molecule issue that acts as that hypertonic pull once it hits the small intestine. And so we encourage them to eat, you know, high protein, things that slow, slow down, low carbohydrates. So that's everything that I've got on upper GI. That was, whew, that was a whirlwind. Um, if you have any questions or if there's a topic you want me to cover, feel free to reach out. My email is listed in the podcast description. If you like what you've heard today, feel free to like it in the platform that you're listening to it in. And other than that, uh, go forth and keep on learning.